When you go out and eat in Hungary, expect to have a delicious time. I mean, you would get gulai soup, you would get uh, paprika chicken, then maybe a, a gypsy band playing in the corner. Typical Sunday lunch would be a good bowl of goulash and maybe a hundred pancakes. Coming up in the hour ahead, we get a personal look at the comfort foods of Hungary. We'll also get tips for the best farmer's markets to visit during harvest time in small-town Provence, in the scenic south of France. It's not only the foods themselves, but it's the big picture of being able to enjoy them right there, so close to the fields and where they were grown. Also, David Reef recommends we re-examine what's working and what isn't to solve the issues of hunger and malnutrition in America and around the world. The richer you are, the smaller a percentage of your income you spend in food and vice versa. Feeding the world, harvest time in Provence, and the cuisine of Hungary. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Provence inspires envy for possessing some of the best things life has to offer. Its landscape and lifestyle have delighted visitors since ancient Roman times with its fields of lavender, olive groves, and red tile roofs under the Mediterranean sun. The land is cared for by people who've worked the soil for generations. In just a bit, Marjorie R. Williams recommends some of her favorite small-town farmer's markets in Provence that alone are worth the airfare to France. And policy analyst David Reef examines how philanthropy and development projects might be missing the mark in trying to buy our way toward eradicating hunger and malnutrition in the developing world. Our number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves in Budapest. From strolling in the Great Market Hall to an evening at a cozy restaurant accompanied by gypsy violins, there's a fragrance in the air that tells you something delicious is about to be served. For a look at the food traditions of Hungary, we're joined by Budapest-based tour guides George Farkas and Peter Poltzman. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. George, what can you learn about the story of the Hungarian people through your cuisine? Well, I think um, one of the things is the, the difference between how hospitality is understood between Hungary and the rest of the world. Hungarians feel hospitable if they can stuff their guests as much as possible. So food is uh, love. Yes, that's what happens. And we give them as much as we can. And we, we will not understand if they don't eat more. Uh, so we will push it as much as we can. And uh, it's interesting how they first resist and then they go for it. If vice versa, you get invited to a foreign house, we get very sort of uh, surprised. How come we're not fed? And how can we only get a, um, a slice of meat and, and three roll, three <laughs> roll of potatoes? Don't you love me? <laughs> I know. You know yeah, I've yeah. had that frustration, in, in, especially when I go to people's homes. We're, we're taught to clean our plate. Right. And in some yeah. cultures, you cannot clean your plate no, because you, there's always more food on it. I don't think you could in Hungary. Now, Peter, Hungary has long been a crossroads, and that, that has a huge impact on the cuisine. How has been the crossroads heritage of Hungary impacted the cuisine? You can find lots of Germanic stuff there. That is the sausage, the sauerkraut, the schnitzel. That's a very popular mm -hmm. thing as well. But you can also find a lot of Balkan experience there, especially Turkish. The Turks brought paprika to the Hungarians. The way we prepare our soups with chopping up onions and stir-frying the onions, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a Turkish thing. So um, the Hungarian cuisine reflects basically everything that, that's around in the neighborhood. The westernmost minaret, I think, is in Hungary in uh, Eger, right? Exactly. Hungarians love to brag about their cuisine. How would you compare Hungarian cuisine to your neighbors, Czech Republic, Slovenia, Slovakia? Well, you will feel it the moment you set foot in the country. Number one, we use a lot more spices. To me, I love Czech, I love Polish, but it tends to be very flat. 
It's meats, it's starches, but because they don't use uh, many spices, it tends to be flat to me. And then you just cross the border and uh, there's paprika, there's all kinds of spices coming into your mouth and it's beautiful. So if you had to spend the rest of your life eating Hungarian cuisine or Slovakian cuisine, what would your choice be? <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope both. <laughs> but if to I be have politically to down correct. to one, oh, absolutely. Magyar. Magyar means Hungarian. Magyar, Magyar. Yeah. Magyar. Yeah. How is Hungarian cuisine changing? Is there a modern cuisine? That oh, definitely. The, the the huge thing, which sometimes backfires, is the uh, fusion food now. Everyone is very excited about uh, basically taking the roots of the Hungarian food and sort of um, blend it down, if one can say something like that. So basically make it less heavy, less greasy, redesign and rethink, rethink, re- it. rethink it. From a practical point of view, there's different kinds of eateries. There's aristocratic eateries, there's street food and so on. Peter, can you do a quick review of the, the different kinds of places a, a traveler might eat in in Hungary? Well, if you want to go to a traditional restaurant, you will find it. I mean, you would get goulash soup, you would get uh, paprika chicken, uh, then maybe a, a gypsy band playing in the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the classic Hungarian. And I wouldn't say no to it, but there's a lot more to uh, Hungarian cuisine So these you days. got that classic, obvious, uh, almost clichetic, touristy restaurant with, with the gypsy band, which really is a great thing to have the music at the meal. And then you've got a uh, more traditional diner. Yeah, there are lots of small places where you can get good hearty food, which is not necessarily the same thing as as the restaurant food. What Mm -hmm. surprises me, just going back to what George said right now, uh, Hungary, uh, half the country is flat and we have a lot of vegetables Mm -hmm. and people didn't eat meat all the time, let's say 100 years ago. And and that's one thing that's coming back, especially to regular everyday Hungarian uh, cuisine these days, more vegetables. Mm. And in in some of these uh, small local restaurants, you can get vegetable stews, for example, which is a really popular thing. So that would be part of this uh, newer cuisine that would be healthier? Uh, absolutely. My wife, wife is a vegetarian, so I know all about uh, all, up, all yeah. about the modern Hungarian cuisine. And, um, and boy, it's delightful. It's just, it's a revelation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Peter Poltzman and George Farkas, both guides from Budapest. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sid's calling from Atlanta in Georgia. Sid, what's your favorite Hungarian food? Well, I am loving anything that has the South's favorite ingredient, which is pork. I'm very interested, too, in in the kind of spices that are indicative of the Hungarian cuisine. And even though it may seem trite, I'm very interested in the history of paprika. That's a great question. It's certainly the quintessential Hungarian ingredient. George and Peter, what what are the origins of uh, paprika and how would we most enjoy it? First of all, um, the Turks brought it in. We blame a lot of things on the Turks, but that's one good thing that, uh, that they gave us. The climate is just perfect to grow peppers. So that's where paprika comes from. They used to call it Turkish peppers. It's a pepper and that you pick uh, usually in the southern part of the Great Plain, and then uh, you dry it, and then uh, you grind it, and then that's how you get the powder form. But these days you can get paprika paste. Uh, you can get the powder form. You can get, get it in various different versions. Do you have you have actually have a paprika shaker along with a pepper and a yeah. salt shaker? Yeah, in, at the in table? a traditional restaurant, that's what you would find. Actually, the jar is more popular these days in in the restaurant, just normal restaurant on the street. Strong Steve, if you find a guy on it. Strong Steve, what's that? It's hot paprika. <laughs> it's a paste. And sweet Anna is the paprika paste, and Which sweet actually, Anna is is the sweet one. What yeah. sweet who? Sweet Anna. So there's sweet, sweet Anna. Anna and, and strong, strong Steve. Steve. <laughs> I like that, uh, George. How do you say that in Hungarian? 
erős Pista, és and édes Anna. Strong Stephen. But it's it's an answer to those that can't really take hot food because we have sweet and uh, and hot paprika even during the preparation and the the idea behind the paprika is also the technique how it's grinded um, mm-hmm. you have to be extremely slow because after you go over a, or above a certain speed you will burn the paprika oh. even while you're cooking it's very important when you take it off the stove to make sure that you don't burn your paprika on your onion if you do you have to throw it away and start the whole process again because you're going to ruin your food so a hungarian probably is, has very high standards when it comes to how the food oh is they're seasoned. very particular if it's not yeah. right send it yeah. back right yeah Strong Steve and Sweet Anna. I got to remember That's what that. what it is. Because yeah. strong, strong Steve is probably very strong. Can, can a typical tourist enjoy the Strong Steve? Uh, it depends on the amount they yeah, eat. They yeah, they can Yeah. It's, um, very, it's not jalapenos, though. Yeah. It's, oh, it's but not he's very receptive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sid, that's, there's some good tips for you. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're spicing up our travels with a little look at Hungarian cuisine. You know, a lot of tourists I know are actually a little disappointed when they have their Hungarian goulash because it's it's not what they anticipated. George, how do you uh, teach Hungarian goulash to your travels? Well, I start with having them tasting it because uh, it is completely different. It is a soup. It's not a stew. And that's what the huge difference is and, and misinterpretation. So a, yeah, so we think of it as a stew. Right, right yeah, and it is a soup. Uh, so um, there's a lot of veggies potatoes and it's actually a full dish so for instance typical sunday lunch would be a good bowl of goulash and maybe a hundred pancakes at the end and when we talk about pancakes it's grapes it's not a hundred pancakes that's the minimum that grandma (laughs) needs to do so uh over sunday morning uh, she'll be uh, up there flipping pancakes we're going over to grandma she's gonna do you actually say that just as a a hundred pancakes yeah that's the minimum pile of pancakes right and then all afternoon you go by roll one up uh, put some jam in and then you get another one and another one and another one as the course of the afternoon passes by pancakes so let's finish off with sweets because we've just had a hundred pancakes. We need more sweets. Um, if you're if you're running around uh, uh, Vienna, you get a lot of sweets. I mean, Vienna just pours the chocolate cake on you and all right. the fancy sweets. Uh, how do the is the Hungarian half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire cuisine? heritage work. Uh, what are the sweets, George? Well, I think one of the, the main ones that we're very proud of is our strudel. I myself always encourage people, I say, that's the one that you can eat as much as you want because there's absolutely no dough in there. The technique is very unique. They pull the dough to a thin quality. So basically, the good measure of a dough is you need to put a newspaper under and then if you're able to read it, then it's the right size of the dough. And then you put only the fill in, let it be apple, whatever that is, and you use the tablecloth to roll up the dough in order so to bake needs it to in be 15 that minutes. thin that you can read the newspaper through it. Right, uh, yeah. Okay, so Therefore, once once it bakes, uh, it's very crispy. Super um, flaky. Yeah, yeah that's so there quality. is no dough. If you were going to go to one venerable cafe in Budapest and enjoy that, what cafe would you go to? Oh, I would go to one of the hidden ones. Um, I'm not sure if you want to reveal it. Ah, uh, a hidden one. So there yeah. are the little neighborhood cafes. But that's one it? of the reasons why you need to come and see us, and we'll show you. Because <laughs> everybody goes to, what's the, what's the big famous one? <laughs> Jadbo. 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 A New York yeah. Cafe. You probably want to stay away from that go to the one of the hidden ones. This is very nice. So fun to talk to you guys. <laughs> We've got an email from Kristen in Naperville, Illinois, and, and she writes, When I visited Hungary on my honeymoon, I fell in love. With langos. Uh, mm. I hope she was falling in love also with her uh, new husband. I ate, I ate langos <laughs> upstairs at the Great Market Hall in Budapest. We visited Hungarian friends and we enjoyed the traditional sour cream and cheese version of this delicious treat. Peter, introduce us to langos. Am I pronouncing it right? Langos? Perfect, yeah. Langos. Because this is sort of like the, the Hungarian donut, isn't it? 
Yeah, langosh is a deep-fried dough. It's hot, you put sour cream and cheese on it, so you're not going for ice cream or something. You go for langosh. Uh, but people fell in love with it, and and you can buy it everywhere. Market Hall is actually one of the best places to, uh, to do so. So the if, Market Hall in Budapest, it's in the big Budapest industrial is. Market Hall, and you can go upstairs, and they've got these langosh dolls. The longest line at 1 o'clock? Uh, yeah, yeah, you have to fight your way through. Uh, so do you, you get, get a get langosh there. that's uh, a savory one and then a sweet one, or how does that work? The uh, Well, you can just get a plain one, uh, mm-hmm. but there's toppings as well. Uh, sour cream and cheese are, are the classic ones, and a pinch sour. of garlic. Let's not forget that. Sour oh, cream and cheese with a little bit of garlic. Garlic. On top, wash it down with a pint of beer, right, oh, George? That sounds good, George. What's, yes. you, what's yeah. your langosh? <laughs> what's your langosh? Exactly the same, but I can only allow myself to have one a year uh, because it's a very heavy food. So. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we had it, we shared it, right? Right. <laughs> very nice. Hey, George Farkas and Peter Poltzman, how do I say thank you in Hungarian? Kusunum. Kusunum. Thank you very much for sharing your culture and your cuisine. You're welcome. If you like Hungarian food. They have a goulash, which is very good. Mix them all up in one big mishmash. And what have you got? Hungarian goulash. Fresh seasonal ingredients for a hearty meal and some pretty nice souvenirs are always on sale at the local farmers and village markets in France. They're usually held once or twice a week in any of hundreds of villages and cities across France. Up next, Marjorie R. Williams has selected her 30 favorite markets in Provence and brings us practical advice for enjoying harvest time there. We're at 877-333-RIC. Marjorie R. Williams always comes home from France with some great souvenirs. She's written a handy guide called Markets of Paris. In that book, she introduces us to the dozens of specialty markets and vendors you can meet on the streets of Paris. Now, she has a new book, sharing her recommendations for her personal favorites among the celebrated markets and producers in the gastronomic heartland of Provence. Her latest guide is called Markets of Provence. Marjorie, bonjour. Thank you, Rick, for having me here today. So you wrote a book about the markets of Provence. Uh, First of all, why is Provence so adored by travelers? What is it about Provence that is just so quintessentially French, all the good stuff that people love about France? Well, first of all, it is how absolutely breathtaking the scenery is in Provence. The uh, gorgeous blue skies, the lush green valleys, the uh, towering limestone cliffs, the red ochre cliffs around Roussillon. You can go from one part of Provence to another, and the landscape changes radically, but it's always beautiful. And I think that's why it's captivated so many Mm. artists and Mm -hmm. filmmakers and writers over the years. But then once you're there, there's so many other reasons to enjoy being in Provence. And for me, of course, one of my favorite reasons to go there is for the food, for the local produce that is uh, really exceptional, and for the wines, too. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think from just a practical point of view, so many of us will be in Paris, and it seems like a long ways away to go down to Provence. But remember, Provence is the quintessential south of France. And uh, nowadays, you can get on a TGV train in Paris and Two and a half hours later, you're in Avignon. And from Avignon, you can rent a car. And within an hour, you're out there in the villages enjoying these markets. Yes, it's much easier than what a lot of people think. If you're in Paris and you can just hop on the TGV, and it'll take you straight down to Avignon or to Aix. And and just as you said, I think renting a car is a good suggestion to be able to get into the little villages and towns. And It's only a couple of hours from Paris, but it's a different world entirely. 
And uh, not only is the scenery radically different, but the people are different. It's a, it's a different culture. I find that the people in Provence, and this is not to be disparaging at all about the Parisians, but it's just that the people in Provence tend to be a little, uh, a little easier to get to know. They're mm-hmm. not very guarded. They're quick with a smile and with a laugh. And there's a lot of warmth. The, the markets, you can see people kissing each other, the cheeks going left, right, left. And uh, it's a very physical culture and a very, there's a great deal of warmth. And that's part of the fun of being there. Marjorie, in your book, you've, you've uh, listed, what, 30 or so markets in this uh, small part of France. A lot of people would be inclined to think if you've seen one market, you've seen them all, especially if you've seen one market in, in one region, you've seen them all. Uh, what would you say to that notion? I would say challenge yourself to visit different markets because they are wildly different. Each market takes on the character of its particular town, and each town, of course, has a very different history, and, and you don't have to go very far. I'm thinking, for example, of there's this little village of Coucheron in the Lubron, which is just beautiful. The market takes place around a reflecting pool and surrounded by these gracious, very mature plane trees and mm-hmm. the dappled shade and the reflections of the trees in the water just couldn't be more beautiful. And then, you know, it's not far at all to go from there to, say, the town of Apt, which is a larger town, and it's not as beautiful in terms of just sort of the natural charm, but there are specialties in Apt that make it a very, very worthwhile destination. There's crystallized fruits that are made there. It's a specialty Mm. of Apt called Fouy Confit, and you will only find them in Apt. And some of the best, the farmland around there is just terrific, and so... The selection, even though it's not far away from the other little village, right. it's going to be very different. And that town, by the way, is spelled A-P-T. But, you know, you would risk not knowing of those fine differences if you didn't do a little reading in advance and, and be tuned in to what to look for. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason to do your studying in advance and take advantage of a, of a guidebook that might point you in the right mm-hmm. direction. Now, you mentioned in your book, Marjorie, that the markets are open all year long. But I think fall must be just the cornucopia of edible delights when you're traveling through Provence. Let's talk about harvest time in the markets of Provence. What are you likely to see during harvest time in the fall? Fall is one of my very favorite times to be in Provence. It's less crowded. The temperatures are still warm but mild. The weather's really pleasant. And you'll see, in terms of the scenery, the fall colors. The leaves change to the yellows and oranges and deep reds. And at the market stands, well, let's, a lot of grapes are being harvested for the wines in the fall. That's always a highlight in the fall. But then you'll, you'll also see figs and apples and pears and an incredible array of mushrooms mm. and squashes. And then in terms of the meats, hunting season begins in the fall. So the butchers are stocked with different sorts of mm. items. You might see pheasant and quail, maybe some wild boar or hare and venison that are usually paired with mushrooms of the season and stewed in some local wines. So the offerings change season by season, and fall certainly has its own character. You know, I love this notion that in France, France is so clued into smart eating and enjoying food that if you go to a good restaurant and, and you're knowledgeable, just by looking at the menu, you can know what region you're in and what season it is. And to think of game and, and mushrooms in the fall. That's just a perfect example of, mm. of a dimension you would, you would see in that time of year, but, but not in another time of year. That's exactly right. And there's something about eating those foods which are so local and eating them in place. Mm. 
you know, seeing the countryside where these foods came from, being able to buy them directly, buying the goat cheeses directly from the goat farmer who was just milking the goats earlier that morning before coming to the market. Uh, So it's not only the foods themselves, but it's the big picture of being able to enjoy them right there, so close to the fields and where they were grown. By the way, when you're going through these markets, is there a culture of sampling? Do, are the merchants happy to let you try things? Yes. Um, it's fine to ask for a sample. A lot of travelers don't know that it's okay to do so, but especially with the smaller items. So, for example, olives, which mm-hmm. are a specialty of Provence, it's fine. I, I even recommend asking for a sample because there can be differences in the, in the quality and the freshness of the olives. And certainly some of the cheeses you, mm-hmm. you can taste. So it's fine to ask for that, and um, it's also, unlike some other parts of France, most notably in Paris, it's actually okay to touch the produce Mm -hmm. in Provence. However, one of the things that I've learned is that I'm very happy to let the vendor do that because the vendors are so much more knowledgeable than I am. Mm -hmm. So if I say that I want a melon that I would like to eat tomorrow morning versus Mm -hmm. tomorrow night, for example... Mm -hmm. A vendor will pick out the just the, the melon that'll be ripe just at the time that I'm ready to eat it. These merchants, these farmers, they are just so enthusiastic about what they've grown and how they're bringing mm-hmm. it to the public. I feel a, a joy, mm-hmm. and to to have a an opportunity to let them give you a little sample and and ask a few questions, especially if you're not in a, an extremely touristy market. I just think that is a, a big dimension of enjoying these markets. Marjorie R. Williams is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She authors the handy Markets of Provence guidebook. In that book, she profiles the high points of her favorite outdoor markets for every day of the week. She also writes the Markets of Paris. It's a guide to the food, antique, and specialty markets all around that great city. Marjorie has also been a featured expert on some of the New York Times Journeys tours of Provence. Her website is marjorierwilliams.com. Teresa's calling in on our listener line at 877-333-RICK, and she's from a part of California that some people call America's Provence, Petaluma in Sonoma County. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Rick. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? Doing good. Have you been to the markets in in Provence? My favorite one is Vaison La Romain. Oh, that is so much fun. We were there in mid-July several years ago, and it's Tuesday, I believe. Still is Tuesday. That's right. But, oh, so much fun. Provence is such a beautiful area, Marjorie, as you've been so aptly describing. But um, Vaisan is a special little town to me because it's got the medieval town up on the hill, and it's also got the Roman ruins, which have been excavated. Mm. So there's lots to see and do. But the market was just incredible. We've seen a lot of markets over the years in different towns, but that one struck me strictly because of the lavender. That is Lavender Mm. Central down there. And it it was mid-July, so it was still in the fields, but it was um, uh, beginning to be harvested. My goodness, we saw it in in flowers, live flowers. We saw it dried in bundles. We Mm. saw seeds. We saw it in soaps. We saw it in all kinds of foods. Mm. And and it just smelled so marvelous. That was the first thing that struck me, I think. Now, Teresa, you were there in the middle of the summer, is that right? Correct, mid-July. So, so Marjorie, uh, a lot of people just have these images of lavender, is that a, a seasonal thing? When would you want to be there to enjoy fields of lavender and lavender in the markets? Well, Teresa, you, you hit it right by being there in, in July. It's, it changes a little bit by elevation, but I'd say the prime time to be there for lavender is in July. 
In mid-August, there's always a lavender festival in the little town of So, which is at a higher elevation, and that's hmm. where the very pure, fine lavender is grown. Now, that town is S-A-U-L-T, and that's yes. in the north of the areas that you're covering. And vaison la Romaine, where which Teresa's talking about, is the farthest north of the markets that Marjorie covers in her book. But really, that's within an easy easy drive of Avignon or, or Arles. Yes, it is, and, and I highly recommend it. I, it's also one of my favorite markets. It's a wonderful market, and... Since we're talking about fall, though, I want to mention with Vaison, there's a soup festival that takes place in Vaison mm. in October. There are festivals galore in Provence every month and many different ones going on simultaneously, but Vaison mm. has established itself with hosting a soup festival in October. That sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, Teresa mentioned Vaison's market is Tuesday, right? And we should remind yeah. our, our listeners that you need to plan because uh, most of these markets are one day a week and the merchants uh, circulate from one town to the next uh, over mm-hmm. the course of the week. So you've got to do a little planning that way. Well, um, I will have to go back in October for the soup festival. Yeah. That sounds like just too much fun. Of course, it's wine all the time also there. Mm-hmm. So uh, harvest in, for the wine would be an awful lot of fun to watch oh, yeah. as well. In fact, you could uh, tie in a little bit of uh, visiting the the vineyards with your market going. Teresa, thanks for your call. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Eric's calling in from Hoboken in New Jersey. Eric, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Hi, Margie. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. You bet. I just thought I'd uh, make a comment or two on the uh, markets in Christmas time. We go to Paris quite a bit through the different seasons, but in the wintertime, it's especially fun throughout France, but particularly in Paris, walking down the Champs-Élysées or some of the smaller market areas just to see the specialties that they have at that time of year. And one of the requests that we often get from our friends is to bring back Christmas ornaments. And uh, we struggle a bit to find Parisian Christmas ornaments, but mm-hmm. we, we find them. And uh, there's uh, the roasted chestnuts and the hot wine and all these things that you'll only see in the winter. So I'd like to encourage your followers to, to check out Paris in those times as well. That's a great idea. And Marjorie, uh, you know, uh, Eric's talking about Christmas markets. Are, are the Santon, those little figurines from Provence, are they seasonal? Is that dealing with Christmas or what? What is that? Yes, and and I'm so glad that the caller mentioned these these markets because they're very special in Provence as well. And Santons are one. Of, it's a unique craft item to Provence. They're little clay figures. Years ago, they were made out of wood or sometimes wax, but now it's clay. They're meticulously hand-painted. And the tradition of this is that this started up after the Revolution in 1789 when people weren't allowed to have public displays of the nativity scenes. And so a a craftsman from Marseille started creating these little figurines representing the baby Jesus, the shepherds, the three kings. And people started to create these little, the creches within their own home. And that tradition has continued and expanded, and now you can find Santons representing all the different tradespeople of Provence, so the fishermen and the baker and the bulls players. They're a great little memento of a trip there, and I would propose that as a Christmas tree ornament for your friends. That's a great idea. And now, as you're traveling, I believe there's a Santon uh, little museum in in Le Beau, and uh, you'll find them in in other museums around Provence as well. There are also some Santons workshops and craftsmen, some experts in Aix-en-Provence and other towns in Provence. We did see a particularly large display in the cathedral in Marseille, and uh, it, mm-hmm. it was probably thousands of figurines and uh, really, mm-hmm. really pretty to see. 
I love the idea that it goes back to the revolutionary times when people weren't allowed to... What was the deal? Cities couldn't have a manger scene, so people just did their little mini figurines uh, on their own. That's right. Brought them inside the house. And I, I've heard some very heartwarming stories of families who... This is a big part of the Christmas tradition in Provence, of creating these scenes with the Santals. Mm-hmm. And very often they will move the figures around to show the progression each day as mm. you know, getting closer to Christmas. And usually baby Jesus doesn't actually appear until Christmas Eve in these scenes. They're very dynamic with them, and families usually add a Santon or two to their collection each year, and it's it's a great excitement for children and for adults. Yeah, it sounds great. Eric, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Marjorie. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marjorie R. Williams. Her book is The Markets of Provence. Marjorie, We've got to finish our conversation about markets in Provence, especially in harvest time, with truffles. You mentioned mushrooms. They're more exotic and expensive in the dark cousin is truffles. Can you find truffles? Where do you look? And uh, what are you going to find in Provence? Oh, if you're lucky enough to be in Provence in the wintertime, definitely try the black truffles. The black truffles are the most aromatic and flavorful. They're so coveted there that they're actually referred to as the black diamonds. And the season for black truffles runs from the middle of November until the middle of March. I've heard chefs in Provence say that the, the very best, the most flavorful ones start to become available in January. So a little bit later in the season is when they're considered to be the best. One of my very favorite experiences was going to the little town of Richeranche, and it's sort of the unofficial capital of the black truffle markets in Provence. And on Saturday mornings in the season, they have two different markets. They're both truffle markets, but one's aimed at the professional group of chefs and other food professionals. And it's a fascinating market. It's very surreptitious. The truffles tend to be in burlap bags in the backs of the cars, and they'll only show them to customers if they really recognize or trust the customers. Large sums of money are are changing hands. There's just a lot of mystery and secrecy and excitement about it. But one of my favorite experiences was going to the village then hosted a truffle omelet luncheon after market. It was fabulous. It was communal tables with people coming together and eating omelets that had been made from eggs that had been in jars with truffles to absorb the smell of the truffles. And then some local musicians started playing. There was an oompa band going on. So there was music and dancing and fabulous food and that goes on many Saturdays in this little, little village celebrating their good fortune of the access to many black truffles. Wow, some towns are lucky to be uh, right there surrounded by beautiful grapes that make the best wine. And what is this town that is so blessed with its truffles? It's called Richeranche, and, and I'll spell that. It's R-I-C-H-E-R-E-N-C-H-E-S. But, <laughs> but there are also truffle markets in the town of Carpentras, and in the smaller town of Valreas. So you don't have to go quite as far as Richeranche to get them. Mm-hmm. But Richeranche, that's where, at the beginning of the season, there's actually a truffle harvest proclamation when uh, the Brotherhood of the Black Diamond, the fraternity, parades in the street and celebrates the start of the truffle season. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, a lot of ceremonial occasions that that accompany truffle season, and that's just one of them. So many dimensions of appreciating French culture uh, regionally and seasonally and edibly. Marjorie R. Williams, 
Thank you so much for sharing uh, your expertise and your passion for the markets of Provence. Thank you so much, Rick. I'm thankful we can enjoy a hearty meal and meet the farmers and artisans in the small towns of France. But for millions of people, getting enough to eat every day is not so easy. Up next, David Reef takes a hard look at what's stopping us from ending extreme poverty and hunger in our world. He joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Stephen McPhillamy from the beautiful north of Ireland. My favorite proverb in our native Irish language is Nilain tin tan mar hintan fain. There's no hearth like your own hearth. In other words, there's no place like home. Nilain tin tan mar hintan fain. There's no hearth like your own hearth. Experts suggest that ending extreme poverty and hunger around the world is within our reach. But can the wealthy world keep up with an ever-growing population and the effects of changing climates? How can we best help those societies that are truly in need? David Reef spent six years researching and reporting on humanitarian aid and development efforts to eradicate the underlying causes of global poverty. He encapsulates what he found in his book, The Reproach of Hunger, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. So the world's population is just over 7 billion now, and uh, there's still a lot of hungry people. What's the news in the fight to end hunger? I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of good news and a lot of bad news. The good news is that famine, which after all has existed for all of human history, that famine has really receded. Hmm. We don't have, there hasn't been a famine of over a million people that we know of, which were commonplace throughout all of human That's history. That's right. When I grew up, it was famines here and famines there. It's not in the news these days. Well, it's on the news because actually they aren't happening. Mm. Even where famines do happen, think of the Horn of Africa, Niger, some of the sub-Saharan mm-hmm. desertified kind of like Niger or CAR. The famines that do take place there, and alas, if a few have, are much less lethal than they were. So on the one hand, we made this tremendous progress. It's a huge emblem. I'm a fair, of a fairly pessimistic bent of mind, but you have to say this is one of the great human achievements to reduce famine to the extent we have. On the other hand, the so-called bottom billion of the seven billion mm-hmm. uh, are not dying of hunger, but their life chances are sure being ruined by chronic malnutrition and undernutrition, which you can define as either, in the case of malnutrition, a a lack of calories, of sufficient calories, whatever's in those calories, and undernutrition, which you can define as being not getting the right nutrients and vitamins and all that. And and that can result in stunted brains. If a whole generation is, is hungry, they can grow up underperforming, can't they? Precisely. That's the rub, that's the problem, Mm -hmm. that if pregnant women and the embryos in their wombs and the children they bear between the ages of birth and the third year, if people are not properly nourished during that period, then their life chances are terrible. They are likely to be underweight. They are likely to, frankly, have 
so much higher incidences of neurological problems, mm-hmm. learning problems, et cetera, as to really have in aggregate, you're not obviously talking about everybody, but that too many of them are really going to be, well, frankly, impaired or hobbled. That could leave an entire generation, an entire country, uh, unable to embrace opportunities to pull themselves out of poverty, perhaps. Sure, and particularly if if it's true, and I believe it is, you know, if we're going to live in a world where education is going to determine the difference between success and failure in a human life, in a society's Mm -hmm. life, then any cognitive impairment is a catastrophe, much more so than when, you know, brute strength or the like was could still get you a decent job. Right. And we hmm. know that's just less and less true. That's a big change, actually, in the last few generations. Now, David, without getting too wonkish, can you just tell us about, there was two great initiatives, the Millennium Development Goals, which just expired, and then the new Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. In 2000, uh, there was a decision at the UN, and take a lot of people supported it in governments all over the world, to set out a series of definable goals ranging from women's education to the treatment of children to hunger to poverty. And they were called the Millennium Development Goals. and They were meant to expire in the fall of 2015. And some of them were accomplished, For example, maternal mortality was reduced in a lot of places. And frankly, the condition of women is the thing that determines the poverty of nations nowadays. If women are in relatively good shape in a society, I don't think there's any society where women are treated equally, but the closer you get to that equal treatment, the more likely that society is to be successful for all of its citizens. I mean, obviously, you can have a rich society like Saudi Arabia, which is just happens to be a catastrophe for half the population and probably a lot more, but is still rich. But there was progress and there were failures. There were failures in education. And above all, I think it's fair to say that although we reduced hunger, the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, didn't do enough. And we still have, depending on how you calculate it, somewhere between 800 million and a billion people who are malnourished and undernourished. And the idea of the Sustainable Development Goals, which were adopted to succeed the Millennium Development Goals at the end of 2015 is when they were adopted, and they're meant to run until 2030, so 15 years more is really to, there are a whole bunch of them, but the basic thrust is to end extreme poverty and hunger in basically much less than a generation, by 2030. And people I know say this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is doable, I understand. Well, I am not of this view, and my book Mm -hmm. is to a very considerable extent a critique of this form of optimism about what we can do and what the measures we're taking will lead us to. Having said that, I want to be clear that I don't think there are any villains in this story. The people I criticize are people I respect, I think are have all the right intentions, and whom I say at a certain point in the book, look, I hope they're right and I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And that this combination of methods, which depend very much on technology and on letting business 
lead the way. Uh, I think those are two key elements here, that those ways of, of addressing the problem can do the job. Unfortunately, I think they misread the nature of hunger. What they talk about has worked, and I think largely does work with regard to famine, but I don't think it works with regard to malnutrition. So that's the crux of my argument. So if corporate um, benevolence and technological breakthroughs aren't going to do it, what will? Well, again, just to come back, it's what will is is justice, is mm-hmm. equality. I mean, my problem with this view is twofold, one of which is I'm a little skeptical about technology, I have to say. I think we live in an era in which we're all in love with technology. And look, I, you know, in order to come talk to you in a studio, the first thing I did was turn off an iPhone which I was on until two seconds before the engineer called me in. And I'm sure the minute I get out of this studio, I'll turn it back on and check three different things. So, I I mean, I understand perfectly well, and I'm not trying to put myself either to the side of or above, you know, all of us who are, Mm -hmm. to some extent, entranced by technology. But I think there's some issues that really techno fixes aren't going to work for and that hunger and poverty are perhaps the most important of all of these. Mm. The other thing to say is business, look, there are lots of great people in business. You know, it's not a question of bad intentions, but it is a question of saying whether the nature of private business, which is completely mobile, which is fundamentally unaccountable, in which there is a democracy deficit, to put it again very mildly, Mm -hmm. can be expected to take up the slack. David Reif analyzes how to turn good intentions into actually solving the world's most urgent problems of hunger and poverty in his book called The Reproach of Hunger. David's also a member of prominent human rights nonprofits and think tanks, organizations such as the Council on Foreign Relations, Human Rights Watch, and the World Policy Institute. You can listen to David discuss international development goals on an earlier appearance on Travel with Rick Steves. Look in our radio archives for program number 432 from January 2016. It's at ricksteves.com. David, I've had this notion that every country produces enough food to feed its people, and it's really an issue of distribution and buying power. Uh, I suppose there might be a few exceptions, but uh, how do you respond to that? I agree with it. I agree with you 100%. That's another problem with what seems to be the dominant development model, which is that it's fundamentally what, you know, to use kind of the jargon of the development profession in which I am to some extent, it's too much of a productivist model. The idea is, it's too simple, it's too binary. The idea is, well, there's 7 billion plus people on the globe now. In 2050, we'll have 2 billion more at a conservative estimate. 9 billion. And we just need to up food production, and that will be okay. Mm -hmm. And probably we do need in some places to up food production, particularly in the places most affected by global warming. But you're coming back to this idea that if, if my cat, if my domestic cat has more buying power than your child, my cat gets the tuna. Yeah, well, it's like disease. Look at all the money being, I mean... Oh, yeah, for first world diseases, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, think of the money being spent mm. on uh, uh, male pattern baldness mm-hmm. Rich research people's diseases. Com- 
Yeah, compared, not even a disease, yeah. just a problem of vanity, and compared to all kinds of diseases in mm -hmm. the developing world that are being ignored or, you know, have to go around trying to get philanthropists and, you know, they're trying to pressure companies to still do research. I mean, river blindness was only addressed by pharmaceutical companies because Jimmy Carter, you know, bless him, actually made it his cause. It shouldn't take a retired president of the U.S. <laughs> to make something that affected millions of people something that we should want to deal with and try to cure. And I'm with you in the sense that I think the problem is not one fundamentally of production. I think it's of access. Distribution, and also of buying the, power. Uh, distribution and buying power. So access. The great Indian economist Amartya Sen did a study it's really made his reputation, although he's gone on to do a lot of other brilliant work, of the Great Bengal Famine of 1943 in West Bengal. And what he found was there was enough food. What there was was, on the one hand, a panic because the British government was diverting food to the war effort. And on the other hand, a raising of prices of speculation in food that made it unaffordable for people it wasn't that there wasn't enough food. People didn't have to mm -hmm. die of hunger and the related disease. And I think you see this time and time again, that the real problem, let me give you an example of one you're doubtless familiar with, that in 2007, the prices of all the major principal food grains, rice and wheat, et cetera, all shot up. And there was panic, and there was a huge spike in malnutrition. There was still enough food. It's just that the prices had gone up. And a whole percentage of a, a population, particularly in poor countries, who couldn't, who were barely able to afford food as it is. And one of the things that's really surprised me when I started the research, but I think is such a key fact, is that the richer you are, the smaller a percentage of your income you spend in food and vice versa. So right. poor people are already spending so much of their income just to feed themselves. Well, yeah. Family. I mean, when we when you think of the recent economic crisis, uh, I always remind my friends half of humanity is trying to live on $2 a day and maybe 80% of their family income is going to rice. And when the cost of rice goes up 20%, that's a crisis. Precisely. And when we allow, we as a, as a society, and I, I mean, the United States does this, but so does everyone else, for food grains to be speculated on in the Chicago Board of Trade as if they were, I don't know, gold or diamonds, as if they were wants rather than needs mm -hmm. to use the kind of philosophy 101 distinction. You know, that actually can impact on the life chances mm -hmm. of hundreds of millions of people because people think they can make a short-term profit. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Reef. His new book is The Reproach of Hunger, Food, Justice, and Money in the 21st Century. Finally, David, uh, I know that there are a lot of uh, ways you can try to make a difference, and advocacy is something that's an alternative to charity. Advocacy meaning basically lobbying for hungry, hungry people, raising a voice for the voiceless in the halls of government. What are your thoughts about the effectiveness of advocacy? I think, to be honest, it's had mixed results. The people doing it are terrific. I mean, think of the group Bread for the World which I believe is Lutheran originally. Right. 
I don't know if they're still. I'm a uh, member of Bread for the World. It's it's originally Lutheran, but it's it's people of all faiths and, and non faiths. Well, then you that. know yeah. infinitely more than I do. But I think what they've done is superb, mm-hmm. and they've been tireless. They've been intransigent where it's been important to be intransigent, but at the same time, they understand politics. They don't expect you know mm-hmm. uh, miracles to happen or that they can get everything they want. The problem is probably that there is not, so far at least, a kind of critical mass of activism around hunger issues globally. We've made some progress, but if you look, for example, at hunger in America, I mean, move just the subject of, you know, from the global hunger picture to the United States, a rich country, there's so many more hungry people in the U.S. now than there were in proportional terms. In part because it doesn't get any traction with the voting public. Yeah, and you have to, and the activism can't just be lobbying for bills or against bills. I mean, the Bread for the World does this brilliant uh, job in terms of, you know, trying to influence the House of Representatives and the Senate on foreign aid bills. But, you know, unless you make it a fundamental issue, things don't change enough. They change. And to give you, here's an example of a really intractable problem. Again, I come back, I tend to be very materialist about these questions. The tax code gives immense subsidies to uh, high fructose corn syrup. That's the result of lobbying the other way. Mm -hmm. Now, with subsidies, that means the bag of Dorito chips you buy is much cheaper because actually you're subsidizing it with your tax dollars. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that people choose to buy a bag of Doritos rather than something that's better for you. They're buying it on price basis. Poor people, you got two, three kids who are screaming and you want to try to do something that will quiet them down and settle them. And and there's this cheap thing that has all this stuff that we as human beings are genetically attracted to, sugar and salt, for a price that's a fraction of what it should cost. Those are the sorts of issues where, candidly, a lot more needs to be done. It's not, I don't mean for a second that the people at Bread for the World don't know this. They know it all too well. David, thank you so much for sharing with us what you've learned in your study of this issue. And uh, again, the book is The Reproach of Hunger by David Reef. Best wishes, David. And to you. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to WGBH Boston and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Rick has an app for your mobile phone with detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Eastern Europe, France, and beyond. 
At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.